Let's open up with a word of prayer before we get going in our Sunday school class. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your love, for your grace, and for your protection. Uh, Lord, thank you that we live in a village that uh, is kind of on their toes as far as all the snow machines go and the plowing, and it was a real thick, heavy snow last night. But, Father, uh, we were able to wake up with clear streets this morning, and uh, it was a blessing to see people plowing out our church parking lot. So, Lord, we just want to thank you for uh, being able to be here and not letting COVID or, or snowstorms or whatever keep us from uh, studying your word and, and fellowshipping with our brothers and sisters. Lord, uh, we're, we're in a very kind of a, a obscure passage. Um, it really doesn't resonate with us too much culturally, and it seems a little bit strange because it's just a break in the narrative. I mean, all this time we've been talking about Joseph, and all of a sudden Judah pops in, and then it goes back to Joseph. So a lot of times people will... <clears throat> skim by this chapter or just really not know what to say about it. But Father, we're going to dive in and uh, go to the deep end and dig deep. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would just lead, guide, and direct us as we go through chapter 38 of Genesis. Help us to know historically, culturally, and linguistically what was going on to get a bigger, broader, clearer picture of your word so that we can understand your word as a whole much better. So when people ask us hard questions or, or wonder about certain things, we will be educated and equipped to have the answer. And not only that, there's also spiritual lessons for us to learn uh, in, in these uh, strange stories. Just as Dr. Michael Heiser said, if it's weird, it's important. And that's, that's a good rule of thumb for the scripture. If it's weird and you don't understand it, it must be important, so study it. So, Lord, uh, guide us, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit being our teacher and guide. And we ask and pray these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, so Genesis chapter 38 is the story of Judah and Tamar. And again, it just seems like it's a weird place to have this story, because up until this time, we're talking about Joseph the whole time. And we're talking about Joseph, and then all of a sudden, the narrative breaks, and we're talking about Judah which is just really weird. And then after chapter 38, we go back to chapter 39, and it's talking about Joseph again. So this is kind of like a segue or a break in the narrative of the story of the life of Joseph. And uh, the Lord you know, felt it important to insert the story of Judah and Tamar. So there's lessons for us to, to learn in here. So let's begin, and we'll reach uh, verses 1 and 2 and just dive right in. It says, At that time Judah... Judah being one of the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob. At that time, Judah left his brothers. Judah was one of the older ones, so he struck out on his own. At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adullamite named Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite. Uh-oh, problems. There, Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as a wife and slept with her. All right, so here we see, if you want to go, if you want to kind of uh, peek behind the curtain or discuss the spiritual aspects of these two verses, here we see Satan working behind the scenes to try to destroy the messianic line even before it gets started. Because we know that it is through the tribe of Judah that Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Messiah, is going to be born. He is the fulfillment of the Genesis 3.15 prophecy called the Proto-Evangelium, or Evangelion, which is basically saying, okay, Adam, Eve, we know you messed up. Satan, in the form of the serpent, we know that you, you, you enticed them to fall, but don't worry, I'm going to send a redeemer. 
you know, there's going to be animosity and, and, and the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are going to be enemies. And the seed of the woman, which is an odd phrase because women don't have seed, they have eggs. So that kind of really tells about the, the, the uh, supernatural virgin birth because uh, it says the seed of the woman uh, will, will, will crush the uh, head of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the serpent will strike at the heel of the seed of the woman. And so we see that fulfilled when Jesus is hanging on the cross and that spike was driven in to his, his heel. And uh, so right away, Satan is trying to corrupt the, the genetic lineage, the DNA, the line, so that Messiah wouldn't be born because we know from very early on, it's a no-no to marry Canaanites because it was the Canaanites, the, the sons of Ham through his son Canaan, who started uh, cohabitating and having sexual relations with the fallen angels ever since Genesis chapter 6. And so, you know, it, it has been a no-no for the sons of Shem, which is the, the Jewish Hebraic line from the sons of Noah, to uh, intermarry with the Canaanite people. So it says, and at that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adullamite named Hira. So we see right away that Judah is making friends with people he shouldn't be making friends with. You know, he's, he's hanging out with the wrong crowd. He's getting chummy and rubbing elbows and shoulders with people he shouldn't. And there, Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua, and he took her as a wife and slept with her. So it says, Judah left his brothers. Now, we wonder why this happened. Why did Judah leave his brothers? Well, they, had, they probably had a possible disagreement or a fallout with his brothers regarding the whole Joseph incident. Now, anybody who comes from a big family, not everybody gets along. Not all the brothers and sisters you know, get along or speak to each other or talk to each other. Sadly, even in my instance, I have brothers and sisters that I don't talk to, and they don't talk to me because of you know, family issues from the past. And it's a very sad situation, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of families who, who are like that. So apparently some way, somehow, either Judah had a falling out with his brothers or he just wanted to strike out on his own. So Judah, Judah is the one who suggested to make a profit off of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37, verses 26 through 27. He's the one who said, let's not kill him. Let's sell him. Let's make a profit off of him. Let's not kill him. After all, he's our brother, right? And it's interesting because Judah is the Hebrew name for the Greek name Judas. So here's another connection with the life of Christ and the life of Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by the suggestion of Judah. And Jesus was sold to his enemies for 30 pieces of silver by Judas. So I think that's a, a very interesting connection there. Um, there's also a legend that after the, the uh, sons of Israel sold Joseph into slavery, into captivity, that they made a pact that they would never reveal the truth upon the pains of death. And they decided to, to all buy new shoes with the money that they got from selling Joseph. And again, that's a legend. That's not in Scripture. So maybe Ju Judah felt guilty. Maybe he felt like he couldn't keep his mouth shut. Maybe he had a falling out with his brothers, so he left. Maybe he was just overcome with guilt uh, because of the whole situation. So how do you, you know, what's one way of, of drowning your sorrows or drowning your guilt? 
A lot of people, if they feel guilty or feel remorseful or feel bad about a situation or regrets, they usually get drunk or they go out and have sex. Sad to say, that's usually the two things that happen when somebody who, who doesn't know the Lord and is lost feels guilty or remorseful. They do something even worse, and after that's over, they feel even worse. So if they're already remorseful or guilty about a situation, they drink to forget or they have sex with somebody to forget, but after they sober up and after the sexual escapade is over, they realize what they've done and they hate themselves even more and feel even more guilty. So it's just kind of a vicious cycle there. Now, he, uh, he left his brothers, has also been translated in other uh, uh, scriptures, other Bibles, as he went down from his brothers. And, and the language is always symbolic in the Hebrew. You've always got to kind of look a little deeper and, 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 and not just look on the surface because what we're reading is an English translation from a Hebrew text. And a lot of times things don't trans, uh, translate over very well. So if you would put in the Bible, he went down from his brothers, it may sound a little odd. And you're like, wait, what does the Bible mean by that? But in the literal Hebrew, it says, Instead of he left his brothers, he went down from his brothers. This is to spiritually indicate he descended into depravity lower than his brothers. Now, his brothers were in depravity because they're the ones who initially wanted to murder Joseph and then, then decided to sell him off into slavery. And so they hated Joseph. So they were already depraved. But here it says that Joseph went down from his brothers. He descended into further depravity than his brothers did. And then it says he settled near, other translations says visited, other translations says turned into. So he either settled near, visited, or turned into. And this symbolizes the fallen rebellion, um, you know, turning the opposite of repentance. So if he was going to repent during his descent from his brothers, during his descent uh, down into the land of Canaan, he would have stopped did a 180 and returned back to his brothers, but he didn't. He fell into further depravity, so he settled near. In other words, he got comfortable with his sin. He settled near. He visited. He toyed around with, with this rebellion, with this sin. He turned into, instead of turning away from, which would symbolize repentance, he turned into the sin. So it says that he settled near, visited, or turned into uh, the Adullamite named Hira. Now, Adullam was a former Canaanite royal city. This was sort of like, this was kind of the equivalent of, of, of the country mouse and the city mouse. This is like the country mouse going to the city because Judah came from the, the, the plains. He came from the grasslands because he was a shepherd. He was a country boy, a country bumpkin, a country hick. And he wanted to live the, the high life in the city. This kind of reminds me of the prodigal son. The prodigal son lived in a similar situation as Judah did, lived off on a far compound, on a far ranch, you know, tending sheep and, and, and doing chores around his father's house. And he says, look, I'm just tired of this country life. I want to I experience what life is really all about. I want to go to the city. So we see that Judah, just like the prodigal son, got his inheritance and left and went to the city, spent all of his wealth, all of his inheritance on, you know, whiskey and wild women and all this. Uh, he wanted to live the city life. Judah did the same thing. He went to Adullam, which was a former Canaanite royal city. Now, if it was a royal city, it was popping. You know, you had all of the everything there, everything that you can think of. It was like New York City 
So just think about, it says he descended from his brothers, so he started going into depravity. And once he hit Adullam, the city of Adullam, he, he descended deeper into depravity. Deeper into depravity. So Adullam was a former Canaanite royal city. Now it says that he met an Adullamite. Now the Adullamite may have been an, a, of the Nephilim bloodline, of the bloodline of the giants, of the fallen ones. So the Adullamite may have been Nephilim blood. He may have had that in him. And he may have been part of the royal family of the city of Adullam. Because if he was a Dullamite and, um, you know, he got into really good uh, friends with, with, with this guy, he could have been of a royal Canaanite bloodline. So this Adullamite, we see his name is Hira. And this hints of his royal Adullamite bloodline because Hira means noble race, noble family. Now, the Nephilim thought that they were better than everybody else because they were not only part human, they were part angel. They were part God, lowercase g, so to speak. So it, it very well could be that Hira was a Nephilim. Hira was part of the royal Adullamite bloodline, and he became friends with Judah. Now, again, this is Satan's trap. This is Satan's orchestrated event to have Judah become friends with this, with royalty from the Adullamite people in order to corrupt the, the bloodline of Judah so that the Messiah wouldn't be born. So, um, Adullam would eventually, uh, ironically, Adullam, the place of Adullam, would eventually become Judah's territory. And there was a cave called the Cave of Adullam, and this is the region, the region where one of Judah's descendants, King David, sought refuge when he was running from King Saul. So I think these are some very interesting things. And just reading it in English, you wouldn't really get that. So you, when you get deep into the word study of who these people were, where they were from, then you get all these other things that come out from Scripture. So we've learned that, that Adullam was a Canaanite royal city, um, Hira means uh, of a noble race or a noble family, which indicates he might have been Nephilim, and he was probably part of the royal bloodline of the Adullamite people. And Adullamite, when Canaan was conquered, would eventually become Judah's territory, where Judah's descendant, King David, which is then the bloodline of Messiah, sought refuge in the cave that's in Adullam from King Saul. So that's, that's a lot to take in, and that's just verse 1. <laughs> We've spent 15 minutes on verse 1 alone. That's how deep, how rich the Word of God is. So verse 2, oh, actually, we, that was the first two verses. I'm sorry. So verse 2 says, There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. And it says, He took her as a wife and slept with her. So we know from Deuteronomy 7.3 and Joshua 23.12 that marrying a Canaanite was a no-no because you just don't know what their genetics are. You don't know who of the Canaanites are contaminated with the Nephilim gene that we read about in Genesis chapter six. So in, for, for Judah, for, um, for Abraham to tell uh, his servant Eleazar when he's seeking out a wife for Isaac, he says, don't get a wife for my son from the Canaanites. Get him from my wife's family. And then when Esau married these Canaanite women, Hittites and Hivites, it says that Rebekah and, and Isaac were grieved at heart. They couldn't stand it. You know, uh, they, 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 these women only caused trouble for them. And when Esau saw how displeased 
his parents were, he ended up marrying a relative from the Ishmaelites, which it would have been the Shemite bloodline. So it was a no-no from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. It was a no-no to marry Canaanite women. And Judah knew this. But yet he rebelled anyway because the flesh wants what the flesh wants. The fallen nature wants what the fallen nature wants. Now, the, 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 um, the name Shua in Hebrew means wealth. Rabbis say that she was the daughter of a wealthy merchant. Um, and she showed her worldview and possibly Judah's motivations and reasonings by marrying into wealth. So it says that Judah left his brothers or went down from his brothers. He descended into depravity, found himself in the, the, the lights and glitz and glamour of the royal city of Adullam, got in really good with one of the royal family and was probably introduced to Shua through this royal family. And she was a rich girl. Her dad, you know, her dad was, was, was a, a merchant. And so she was wealthy. So this kind of showed that Judah was beginning to become a very shallow person. He was about the money. He was about the looks. He was about the prestige. If I marry into this family, I'm going to get wealth. If I marry into this family, it's going to look good because I married wealthy and I married into a family that has a, 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 a big reputation among the Adolamite people. Um, and after all, Judah was marrying up in his opinion. Because Judah was a, he was just a humble shepherd. Shepherds were despised even among their own people. It was a very dirty, a very unclean job. And we see that Egyptians hated uh, um, shepherds. And so he was marrying up. And he's like, man, if this girl, this rich girl is going to take me, I should jump on this chance. All right, so moving on to verses 3 through 5. She conceived, Shua conceived, and gave birth to a son and named him Ur. Even in the English, that's not a good name. Because if you err in English, what does it mean? It, it means you make a mistake. You mess up. You err. You're an error. I think it's short for the word error. And I know that we're talking Hebrew and English here, but I just think it's kind of funny that the word err in the English means to, to err, to, to, uh, to be misguided, to be an error. But yet the word err... The word Ur in Hebrew means watcher. Watcher was another name for the Nephilim. It was actually the name of the fallen angels because if you look in the book of Enoch, the book of Jasher and the book of Jubilees, it talks about the watchers descending. And these watchers were these fallen angels that become so fascinated with the human women that they wanted to experience what it was to be like to be with them. And then that's where the hybridization comes in, where the sons of God saw the daughters of men and took them and married them, all, that we read in Genesis chapter 6. So this is another indication that Judah probably married a woman who was contaminated with the Nephilim gene of the fallen angels, because the first son is called Watcher. So we move on, and it says in verse 4, she conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan, or Onan. Onan means strong. It means strength. This could possibly hint at Onan's supernatural strength because he had the Nephilim gene. Because these giants, it says that they were famous men of renown. In other words, they were the famous warriors that stories are told about and bards wrote songs about. 
And we know that these giants had supernatural strength and supernatural ability. So there's another hint and indication that Judah was corrupting the, the bloodline here. And so we move on from verse 4 to 5, and it says, She gave birth to another son. So Judah was married to, to her for probably quite a long time. Let's even say that, you know, um, she just had one kid right after another. Usually there's a gap between children, but let's say she was perpetually pregnant. So you're talking about nine months, three sets of nine. So let's just round that off and just say a year. He was at least with her for three years. Probably my guess would be he, would, he was with her probably for 10 years, probably a decade. So it says, she gave birth to another son and named him Salah. Salah means a petition. What was she petitioning? She was probably petitioning for more sons because that's what the desirable thing was. Girls cost money back in that day because you had to provide a bride price, you had to provide a dowry, you had to make sure they were married off. And it was the sons that provided the work, it was the sons that provided the money and the income and, and, and built up the family line and perpetuated. So Salah means petition. Now it's, it's interesting because it gives the place where Salah was born, which is unusual. So there must be some meaning behind it. She gave birth to another son and named him Salah, it was at Chezib that she gave birth to him. Chezib means false failure, secession. So there's a hint that she was unable to have any more children after Salah. So the rabbis say that she was petitioning for more sons, but she failed to have any more sons after Salah. Could you imagine there would be that much information in the first five verses of Genesis chapter 38? Every time I dive into the word and study it, I am blown away and amazed at the depth and the things that we miss because we just skim past it and don't dive any deeper. All right, so let's go to verse 6. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now, it, this, this is very common. Back in the Middle East, and it's still the case today, that it's a father's responsibility to negotiate with, with other families to try to marry off their sons into good stock, into good families. And that's why marriages are arranged. Here in the West, we marry anybody we want. You know, we meet somebody somewhere, we fall in love, we go out on dates, we get engaged, we get married. And even, even old noble traditions such as asking the parent for the blessing is not even done anymore. People just marry who they want to marry. But back then, and even today still in the Middle East and parts of Africa and around the world, families get together and they negotiate. And usually, you already know who you're going to marry shortly after you're born. Because, you know, somebody has a son, somebody has a daughter, they're friends, they're family friends, they're maybe co-workers, or they're, they're, they're uh, in the same community. And so the, the parents will meet together and say, hey, I just had a son. Hey, I just had a daughter. You know, hey, you, you're a good family. Yeah, you're a good family too. Let's have our children marry each other, and then we can become one family. Yep, sounds great to me. So these are arranged marriages, and it's very common. So Judah uh, arranges a marriage for Ur. And um, we see this happen, too, in Genesis 24, when Abraham knew it was his responsibility to get a wife for Isaac. So he sent Eleazar, and Eleazar, through God's help and supernatural uh, providence and guidance, finds Rebekah, somebody from uh, Sarah's family. So it says, 
Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Tamar, in the Jewish commentary called Bereshit, that is Genesis Rabbah, or the great Genesis, in uh, chapter 85, verse 10, it says that she was a daughter of Noah's son, Shem. So Tamar apparently was a direct descendant of Noah's son, Shem. We know that Noah's son, Shem, is the father of all the Jewish, Hebrew, and Arab peoples. So we know that they are free of the Nephilim gene as, op as opposed to Ham and his son, Canaan, who produced the Canaanites. So um, that's, that's who Judah chose. Now, again, this is, I believe, this shows part of Satan's plan. If Judah was getting chummy with the Canaanites, and Judah was, was, was in close with the royal family of Adullam, why didn't he get a wife from the Adullamite people? That would be considered marrying up. That would be considering marrying into wealth, marrying into royalty. Why would he look outside of where he was to find a wife for his son Ur? I think it was Satan trying to inspire Judah to get a Semitic woman for his Canaanite son in order to pollute the Messianic bloodline. Because if any sons were born from Ur, Onan, or Salah, then what would happen is that the Messianic line, the Messiah, would not have come. Because it would have been corrupted with that Nephilim gene and the Redeemer wouldn't come. So this was Satan's plot to try to thwart the Genesis 3.15 prophecy. But we see how God deals with this. Because in verse 7, uh, it says, Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight. Well, gee, isn't the Lord judging there? I mean, just to come right off the bat and say this person's evil? How could this person be evil? Well, the person can be evil if they, if they were not truly human. This person could be evil if they didn't fall within the, the pure human genome. If he was part Nephilim, he would naturally be evil because he was the product of fallen angels. Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. So this word evil means wicked. It means somebody that's displeasing to the Lord. Somebody that enjoys to afflict, hurt, and grieve, and harm other people. So basically, Ur was nothing but trouble. Is an easy way to say it. He was nothing but trouble. And to me, this furthers that evidence that he was probably Nephilim. And it says that the Lord put him to death. The King James says the Lord slew him. This Hebrew word means he executed him. Executed him. Who, do you, who gets executed? People who do wrong. People who break the law. People who are treasonous. People who are rebellious. People who are evil. They're the ones who get executed. And so it says that God literally executed, we don't know how that happened or how it was, but it said the Lord executed Ur. All right, so we move on. Let's go to verses 8 through 10. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife, perform the duty as her brother-in-law, and produce offspring for your brother. Now, this is called the Leverite marriage. And that comes from the Latin. But Leverite marriage, not a Levite marriage, but a Leverite marriage. A Leverite marriage was the tradition that we find in the five books of Moses that was commanded that if a man dies without producing a male heir, that his brother or close relative would perform this duty for his dead brother and produce a male child for him. 
And that male child would go by the name of the deceased brother so his line wouldn't be extinguished. Because that was kind of a, 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 um, a way of eternal life, a way of being immortal, is that you, that you live on DNA-wise through your descendants, through your children. And because brothers share the same DNA, uh, that firstborn son would be the, the considered the son of the dead brother. We see this classically happen in the book of Ruth, where, uh, you know, Ruth, a Moabitess, ironically, uh, her husband, which was a Hebrew, dies, and she goes with uh, Naomi to back to, uh, back to the land of, of, of the Hebrews. And uh, so we, we know that um, Boaz eventually takes Ruth because he is her kinsman redeemer. He is the closest relative and has the closest DNA of the dead husband in order to produce a son in his name. And so we see that being played out. So it says, now Ur, uh, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife, perform the duty as a brother-in-law, and produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that his offspring would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his semen on the ground so that it would not uh, produce offspring for his brother. Verse 10, what he did was evil in the Lord's sight. So he put him to death also. So Onan also was likely a wicked Nephilim. Clearly he was selfish. He was so selfish, in fact, that, man, if I produce a male child through this woman, he's not going to be my son. You know, why, why would I want to do that? What benefit is that to me? How is that going to help me out any? The only reason I'm doing this is because father told me to. And so, like, when he came to that point of climax during intercourse, he pulled out and spilled his semen on the ground so that there would be no male child produced. And this was, considered, this was considered spitting in your dead brother's face, slapping your dead brother in the face, disrespecting your dead brother. Who knows? Maybe Onan and Ur didn't like each other. Maybe it was a situation like Joseph and his brothers. Maybe Onan had some sort of grievance or grudge against Ur because he was the firstborn. He was the one that was supposed to inherit everything. I don't know. We don't know. But we know that... Um, he refused to, to uh, follow through with this custom of the Levite marriage. Now, we read more about this Levite marriage and the consequences of not fulfilling this in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. Deuteronomy chapter five, uh, 25, verses 5 and 6, it says, When brothers live on the same property, and one of them dies without a son, the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside of the family. Her brother-in-law is to take her as his wife, have sexual relations with her, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law for her. The first son she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother, so his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not want to marry his sister-in-law, she is to go to the elders at the city gate. Basically, the city gate was the, basically the, the courthouse of, of the ancient world. His sister-in-law is to go to the elders, the, the rulership, the ruling elders, the judges at the city gate, and say, My brother-in-law refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a brother-in-law for me. The elders of the city will summon him and speak with him. 
basically trying to convince him, hey, do the right thing, guy. Come on, do the right thing for, for your dead brother. If he persists and says, I don't want to marry her, then the sister-in-law will go up to him in the sight of all the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, and spit in his face. That's pretty gross, right? But and again, I want you to see how the Torah is different than any other legal document of its time because women had no rights. This gave women rights. She spit in his face, then she would declare, this is what is done to a man who is not willing to build up his brother's house and his family name in Israel, and he will be called the house of the man whose sandal was removed. So in other words, if a brother was not going to fulfill the Leverite duty, for his deceased brother, it was a very dishonorable and shameful, shameful thing. And that reputation would follow you for the rest of your life. Everybody would know that your sister-in-law spit in your face. Everybody would know that you had your sandal removed. Because you're, it seems strange to us, what's so big about a sandal? Well, in the Middle East, it's a disrespectful thing. You know, just like it's disrespectful if I flip you the bird. It's just a finger, right? What's the big deal? But in our culture, it's a very disgraceful and, and shameful thing to flip somebody off. Well, to show somebody your foot, your bare foot, to show somebody the sole of your foot or your heel is considered almost the same thing as flipping somebody off. You know, so to remove someone's sandal is to basically shame them, to make them naked in a sense, to make them somehow immodest. And also, if you wear sandals, it meant that you were a man of substance. You were a man of power and of reputation. But if you had no shoes and you were barefoot, you were a poor country bumpkin kind of thing. So that's another thing that, that kind of adds to it. So we see that Onan refused. He did a shameful thing and refused to carry out. He acted like he was going to do it. I mean, after all, he was, he, you know, he, he, he was having sex. He was fulfilling the desires of his flesh, but he wasn't fulfilling the desire of the Leverite marriage in order to carry on the family name of his brother. The Lord took offense to this, not only because he was likely Nephilim, but because he wouldn't fulfill the Leverite uh, tradition. And so it says God executed him as well. Now, we don't know how this took place. But, but we don't know how they died, but to be executed means to, it implies dying a violent death. In other words, he didn't die in his sleep, I can guarantee you that. So he probably died in some sort of violent way, in some sort of supernatural way, probably. Who knows, maybe he was struck by lightning. Somebody who's struck by lightning back in the ancient times, you're like, oh my gosh, God was really mad at him. He sent a thunderbolt, a lightning bolt to kill this guy. Now, if somebody survives a lightning strike back in the ancient time, they were considered blessed by the gods. <laughs> so, you know, uh, that's just throwing a little bit of uh, um, ancient uh, lore in, in there. Uh, okay, so in verse 10, it says that, uh, back to Genesis 38, verse 10, it says, what he, Onan, did was evil. Other translation says it was displeasing. This word anger, this word displease, or this, this word for evil means to quiver with anger. If you've ever been so mad that you were shaking, you were so mad and full of rage, you were just quivering and shaking because you felt like you were going to explode. This is the way God felt toward what Onan was doing. What he did was evil, displeasing, made the Lord quiver with anger so that he put him to death also. He also slew, executed Onan. All right, so all you have is three sons. 
Three strikes and you're out. This puts fear into Judah because Judah is saying, wow, if Ur and Onan died because of this woman, the only son I have left is Salah. What am I going to do? All right, so we move on to verses... um, Okay, verses uh, 11. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Salah grows up. So Salah, he at the very, 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 very least had to be 13. But I would say probably that Judah was counting on waiting for him to be maybe 30. Because that was when you were considered a full-fledged responsible adult in the community. So it says, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Salah grows up. For he thought, Judah thought, he might die too, like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. So to become a widow was bad enough, but have to return to your father's house was, a, was kind of a shameful thing. It was kind of a disgraceful thing. Now, I want to read to you something from the Apocrypha. Now, the Apocrypha is found in Catholic Bibles. The Apocrypha is um, uh, something that the first century believers read from. They didn't necessarily consider it canon, per se, but they did learn lessons from it. They did instruct their kids and their congregations from it. So if I can find here the book of Tobit. Give me a minute here. Okay, so we're going to read from Tobit. Chapter 3, starting at verse 7, it says that the same day in the city of Ekbanta in Media, it happened that Sarah, the daughter of a man named Ragul, was insulted by one of her father's servant girls. Uh, Sarah had been married seven times, but the demon, the evil demon, Asmodeus killed each husband before the marriage could be consummated. So Sarah was considered a black widow. Tamar was considered a a black widow. She's bad luck. Every man she gets with dies. The servant girl said to Sarah, "You're you're a husband killer. Look at you. You've already had seven husbands, but not one of them lived long enough to give you a son. Why should you take it out on us? Why don't you go and join your dead husbands? I hope we never see a child of yours. Sarah was so depressed that she burst into tears and went upstairs determined to hang herself. But when she thought it over, she said to herself, no, I won't do it. People would insult my father and say, you only had one child and a daughter whom you love dearly, but she hanged herself because she felt, no, she felt so miserable. Such grief would bring my gray-haired father down to his grave, and I would be responsible. I won't kill myself. I'll just beg the Lord to let me die. Then I won't have to listen to those insults any longer. Then Sarah stood by the window, raised her arms in prayer, and said, God of mercy, worthy of our praise. May your name always be honored and may all your creation praise you forever. Lord, look, I look to you for help. Speak the word and set me free from my life. Then I will no longer have to hear these insults. You know, O Lord, that I'm still a virgin. I have never been defiled by a man. Never have I disgraced myself or my father's name as long as we lived in the land of exile. My father, 
has no other child to be his heir, and there is no relative whom I can marry. I have, see, we talk, see, there goes the Leverite marriage right there too. I have already lost seven husbands, and why should I live any longer? But if not your will to take my life, at least show mercy to me. Don't let me hear those insults again. As Tobit and Sarah were praying, God, the God in heaven heard their prayers and sent his angel Raphael, which is considered the angel of healing, to help them. And he sent to them to remove the white film from Tobit's eyes so that he could see again and to arrange a marriage between Sarah and Tobit's son, Tobias, who as her cousin had the right to marry her. So he was, he was the one that was going to perform the Leverite marriage, the duty. Raphael was also ordered to expel the demon Asmodeus from Sarah. So this would ensure that Tob Tobias wouldn't die when he consummated the marriage with Sarah. At the very moment that Tobit went back into his house from the courtyard, Sarah in her house in Ectabana Ek was coming downstairs. So a very interesting uh, account from the apocryphal literature that kind of plays right into this story of Judah and Tamar and uh, Tamar and uh, Ur and Onan and Salah. So Judah thought that she was bad luck, maybe demon possessed, maybe cursed, and he didn't want his last and only child, Salah, to die like Ur and Onan. So he said, oh, just go back to your father's house until Salah grows up and then it'll all be good. But that never happened. That never came to be. So verse 12 says, after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of, of Shua, died. Who knows? Maybe she was evil in the sight of the Lord, too. The scripture doesn't say, but she died. So Judah no longer has a Canaanite wife, which is a good thing. Because this might be Judah's chance at redemption, the chance at preserving the Messianic bloodline. When he had finished mourning, he and his friend Hira, the Adullamite, went up to Timnah uh, to, uh, to uh, sheep shears, to his sheep shears. So I think what we're going to do, I'm going to uh, comment on this verse, and we're just going to kind of stop right here because this gets into a whole other narrative that we don't have time to get into today. But basically, you know, uh, uh, Judah's wife, his Canaanite wife dies, Shua dies. And uh, even though that he married rich and married a merchant's daughter, he still was a shepherd. He still did the occupation of a shepherd. Maybe that was his side hustle. I don't know. But it says that his friend Hira, the Adullamite, which Hira means noble family, Adullamite was a royal city. So this, this prince of the Adullamites, who was his friend, they went up to Timnah to, uh, to shear the sheep. Now, that doesn't mean anything to us, but sheep shearing was a big deal. They made a party out of it because the sheep's wool would bring in a lot of income. They would be able to sell this, this, this wool to merchants. And maybe that was the connection with Shua and Judah because maybe the wool from, from the sheep that he sheared would go to Shua's family in order for them to sell the merchantile, to sell it to people who would become, you know, uh, spinners and weavers and what have you. So we, we're not really sure how this worked, but it was a party. Now we see the same thing happen way back when, a couple chapters earlier, when, when Jacob flees from Laban. When does Jacob flee from Laban? During the time of shearing sheep. It was such a party that they went to another place in order to perform this sheep shearing ritual. There was food, there was dance, there was singing, there was partying, there was booze. 
it was just a full out party, you would be too preoccupied having a good time in order to even think about Jacob making an escape, but that's exactly what happened. So here we see Judah going to shear his sheep and going to a party. He left his brothers. He descended from his brothers. Here again, we see Judah falling into more depravity. And we'll get into this next week of how far, uh, how low Judah went into depravity. So this sheep shearing thing wasn't just a job. He was jolly. He was in good spirits. He was purposely looking for a good time. And he found it. And we'll leave it right there at a cliffhanger. And we'll pick this up next week. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you how full your word is. I mean, spending like almost an hour on the first 12 verses of a chapter is pretty intense. There's pretty deep things that we can unpack and pick apart and unfold and look at and examine closer and see things in finer details we would have never otherwise been able to do. So we thank you for the wonders of your word, the depth of your word. I don't see how anybody can say that the Bible is boring. People who say the Bible is boring do not give the Bible a fair shake, for sure, because there's just so much depth in it. You just got to dig. It's just like digging for treasure. You got to get through the piddly sand and the dirt and the rocks in order to get to that treasure chest down below. And all that hard work and all that tedious, menial, seemingly meaningless work is going to pay off once you hit the top of that treasure chest and you know that there's gold and jewels there. So when we dig into your word, it's the same thing. We, we strike a vein of gold of your word. We strike a vein of silver of your word. We find a gem, the pearl of precious price, or, or, or we find that, that, that ruby that's going to bring in millions because your word has so much return and dividends. And we thank you for uh, the awesomeness of your word. So help us, Lord, as we have uh, studied today to digest and to assimilate and to better understand what we've learned so we can apply it to our lives as well as share it with other people, as well as get a broader picture of what your word is really all about, what your word means as a whole. Because this chapter, though it seems weirdly placed in the Bible, has everything to do with the coming of Messiah. Because this was Satan's plan to thwart the coming of Messiah, and we will see that Satan fails. Praise be to the Lord. And we're standing here today with Jesus in our hearts and redeemed because of the victory that was gained in Genesis chapter 38. Amazing. Amazing, Lord. We love you and we praise you and ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.